This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Who are you? What do you stand for? What do you want? Entrepreneurs usually know the answers to those questions when they start up companies, but do their leadership teams. To make sure they do, top entrepreneurs develop a blueprint that will guide their companies as they grow from 6 to 60 to 600 employees, says Michael Yusim, Wharton Professor of Management and Director of its Center for Leadership and Change Management. In this installment of the podcast series for the Wharton CERT Business Plan Competition, Yusim discusses blueprints and other things that entrepreneurs need to develop successful leadership teams, including a knack for telling a good story. Our guest today is Mike Yusim. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Good to be here. We wanted to talk to you about how startups develop uh, leadership teams. The question is as follows. When entrepreneurs launch startups, it's obviously critical to have the right leadership team in place. What kind of people should the entrepreneur look for? Well, to take a step back on this, the act of being an entrepreneur is indeed an act of leadership. You are creating something out of nothing, and one of the great defining qualities of leadership is taking the circumstances we have now and getting to a better place, uh, uh, a new era, or in the case of an entrepreneur, taking an idea and turning that into reality. Having said that, the act of getting an enterprise going almost as its next step should be followed by a self-conscious effort to build out a team. You simply can't do it all yourself unless you want to be a one-person show and keep the firm at about that size. And the reason for that is pretty obvious. The functions often become technical that have to be fulfilled. You just don't have the time to engage in everything obvious point there. And so creating initially the team, later it would be simply the top management team as you expand beyond that, absolutely critical. Drawing upon a long research tradition in my field, if you are looking to forecast the future performance of a company and you can know everything there is to know about the chief executive officer, in this case the entrepreneur, or you can know everything there is to know about the CEO plus the team, you definitely want the latter. In that for performance, for getting a job done, and then later for measurable performance, having a team in and around you that appreciates your view of the world, understands the strategy going forward, and then to map out a bit who ought to be on that team, Aside from the fact that they are on the same page when it comes to mission, vision, and how you're going to build a strategy and execute around that, uh, you do want people who don't look just like you. It's a, it's a kind of an old uh, formula here. It's a very obvious formula. But the, your ability to be innovative as you build, your ability simply to be creative and smart about the world you're trying to capture as a new startup depends enormously on the diversity of experience and background of the people in the room. Maybe a quick summary would be something like this. If you are out to, say, five or six people uh, in terms of your team, 
currently maybe that's everybody, later on what could be the top management team. Uh, great if you have people in there with different functional backgrounds, marketing, accounting, uh, operations, supply chain, and also people who have just worked in different industries and different worlds. If you lead them well, having them there is only half the formula. If you lead that team well, gather, gather their ideas, actively listen, integrate, uh, it's a pretty good formula for development. Uh, is there a difference between the kind of team you need as a startup compared to the kind of team you need when a business is much more established? And if so, what are the, how, how, what's the difference? What skills do you need? Well, here would be the common ground. I think in terms of what a team, whether it's running a huge company like a GE or a rather large company like an eBay or a brand new startup with, say, five or six people, that team, just to go back on what I've already said, in fact, has to be united in the vision of where to take the enterprise. They have to be in agreement on the strategy for doing so. They've got to be able to execute around that. They need to be people of character that you can rely upon. The integrity is impeccable. Uh, they have to be effective in communicating what the company is and what it stands for to employees, to, as you build out, certainly to customers and obviously to private equity representatives, whoever may be indeed uh, backing the enterprise. So those would be the common threads. In the early phases of startup, you want people who can do all these specific functions and just about everything else. So uh, at, in those early days, if somebody says, look, I only do accounting, that's probably not the person for your team. In later phases, though, by virtue of size and just the daily activity of getting highly technical tasks uh, accomplished, opening up a new marketing campaign, let's say in China, uh, you want people who are dedicated marketing people, chief marketing officer on that top team. But I think the, the formula does apply whether startup, six people only, or midpoint development of a company, you, a team of five or six, and now let's say 500 employees, that that team uh, is going to be as good as it should be if there is commonality of purpose, if the mission is, is unequivocally clear, and the team does work as a team. That is not going to be the product of any accident. That will be the product of your ability to lead mold and develop the team. Just to give you case in point, when Margaret Whitman came in to pick up uh, the CEO ship at eBay back in 1998, at that time it had 28 employees. It uh, was a uh, highly creative and at that point already uh, looking like it was going to be a highly successful internet startup. Having said that though, the place was a bit chaotic, nobody had schedules, there was no kind of regularity to the rhythm of the company. And so with that, uh, Meg did foster, did create a top management team, brought order to the place in a way that was required as it went from 28 to over 15,000 that it does have now. What considerations should you keep in mind as you expand the team beyond the initial core group? 
Well, here are two key points, again, from the academic research literature on this. My guess is it would probably correspond to the experience of most people who've been in the throes of a startup. Number one, you create a kind of a, a blueprint. In fact, some academic researchers have even used this term to describe what I'm about to describe. You create a blueprint of how you operate in the early days, the early months. So our meetings open. Do people receive compensation on a fixed basis or is it all stock driven? Is your idea set the only idea set that drives the company or is there some kind of collaboration as you bring up ideas from all directions? There are many ways to skin this cat and entrepreneurs have created many different forms. But the main point of the academic literature is that once you create as a leader and entrepreneur a way of operating, it becomes really hard to change that later on. The blueprint. Once you've got it, you're going to have a hard time shifting. Thus, being self-conscious about that blueprint in the early phases, because it may last your lifetime, very hard to change later on, uh, critical to get it right at the outset. Number two, though, when it's six people, communication is direct, camaraderie is usually fantastic, it's an energizing world to operate in. When it goes from six to 60 or 600, then what's going to carry your vision, your ideas, your strategy, your methods to those who are one, two, maybe three steps removed is your ability to create a common, call it a mindset, call it a culture, call, you, call it the values and norms. Early phase, I wouldn't worry about culture but as this blueprint is mapped out pretty quickly, you need to think about the culture, the mindset you want, and become active in articulating that. Say, look, this is who we are. This is how we operate. I reward people for doing these things that represent the best of our culture. Very important to build that out and build it up. <coughs> Pardon me. Hmm. How do you create a common mindset and culture? It seems like it would be very hard to do. I think it's one of the toughest challenges in management, whether it's a startup, a mid-career, a mid-term company, or a mature company, because I think we all quickly think, gee, culture is vague, can't quite get our hands on it. If somebody asks you, what are the defining qualities of American culture or Indian culture or Chinese culture? We kind of know it when we feel it. It's just sort of hard to put words on it. Having said that, uh, culture really comes down to what you value. Like, here, Here's what's important. Good to have four or five things that we really value, clearly articulated. Number two, <clears throat> what sociologists would call norms. You want implicit rules or ways of behaving and we all are guided by our values. We're all guided by the norms of our society, our culture. And in most cases, we are inheritors <clears throat> of those values, of those norms. If we are raised in, let's make it India, by time we're 10, we, we know how we're supposed to behave in public, how we're supposed to queue at a bus stop, all that sort of thing. In building up a company, though, we are the makers of culture, not just the recipients we're not just the consumers of culture. And to make the culture, no rocket science here at all. It is simply four or five steps of, in a sense, heavy lifting. You have to do it. 
Uh, it's not easy to do it, but it must get done. So, for instance, <clears throat> everything you say, everything, every gesture that you, <clears throat> every gesture that you use, unconsciously, this happens. It's not your conscious intent for the culture to come out of that, but in those early startup phases, people look at you as the definer of how they should behave themselves. So in the first instance, it's just you, how you operate. Are you quiet or do you explain? Do you come respectfully into a room or not? Later, a little bit larger as the firm develops, it's often what you might call rituals, that is celebrations, confirmations, new product goes out the door, champagne is popped, speeches are given, great to celebrate, but also that is reaffirming in that act of ritual what is important. Compensation, promotion, hiring even, sends signals out. Who are you hiring? Who are you letting go? What are you rewarding? All part of making the culture. And finally, I think we do not appreciate the power of account giving and storytelling but when it comes to culture and its sustenance, I think there's almost no more, no more important act on your part than to offer your story, give your account. For startups, that's often the account of the creation. How did you get the idea? What angel investor did you first approach? What was, what was the magic moment when you went from an idea to the first service or product out the door? Offering that account, that story up in as graphic detail as you can remember and muster is critical for shaping the culture. Thus, thinking about American culture, we celebrate our founding fathers. We think about them, what George Washington did, what Je Thomas Jefferson did. Very important for reasons to understand history to appreciate what they did. But every such discussion, every such article or book we might read about it is really helping us appreciate what American culture is. Same for a startup, same for anybody in private enterprise. That's a great answer. Uh, Mike, you've seen lots and lots of companies, startups and large <laughs> organizations. What, is, what are some of the most common pitfalls you have found in building a leadership team and how can you avoid them? Well, number one is the inability to actually, or the lack of commitment to, building leadership in the people that are on your team. If it's a young firm, often you're bringing people who are themselves not terribly far along in their career into the firm. Leadership for most people is not a natural skill. They just don't come with it. We're not wired for it. A few people are naturally born. Most of us have to acquire it. If you're an entrepreneur, by definition, you know how to lead. You're not there unless you've got a lot of the talent that we use to define leadership. So the first calling or the first error to avoid, the first calling is to become self-conscious about developing your team. Nothing arcane about this. Uh, Off-site retreats, spending a day on a battlefield, taking your team to, say, look at another startup just to spend the day together. 
These are all small acts of, of leadership development. Number two, as the company evolves, for some people, this is obviously true, not for many, uh, the act of letting go, absolutely vital. Letting go means on the affirmative side, you're extremely good at communicating your intent. It's what military officers by analog would refer to commander's intent. We in business would tend to call it strategic intent, but laying out what you want done. An officer taking, let's say, a force into Iraq or Afghanistan these days, a middle to senior officer would say, our intent is to get to this base, to set up a fortified compound, and then to be begin to engage uh, in field missions. But having offered up intent, if you've developed the people on this team, part two then is don't micromanage. If the leadership is there, if your intent is clear, they've got the formula, their leadership is developed, they know where you want to go, and then letting those people on the team get the job done. Number three, that does require a tolerance for errors. You're going to make errors, to say the obvious here, this is a risky venture, uncertainty is high. The people that you delegate to, they say these top six later, they're going to be delegating in turn. They need room to act. They've got to make decisions. And you want to for sure not look over their shoulder a whole lot because if you do, their decisions are going to be better. Few errors will be made but a whole lot less decisions will get made. And as the company goes from 6 to 60 and then 600, uh, it's a formula for one person control, which works well at the outset, but it's a formula I think is doomed to failure as you do grow. It, it seems to me that entrepreneurs uh, sometimes have problems with, uh, with giving up control. And even if they do delegate they may be tempted to intervene from time to time and reassert themselves. Are there any words of advice you could offer how, how, how entrepreneurs themselves yep. should deal with this issue in, in, uh, on their own? Here are two or maybe three words of advice. Number one, learn how to bite your tongue. Number two, learn how to walk into a meeting. This is a matter of not even learning necessarily. It's a matter of self-discipline. Uh, just track what happens in that meeting. If it's six people, are you talking about 20% of the time or less? Fine. If it's more than that, you're missing an opportunity to let ideas, decisions get made by other people. Uh, number three, putting yourself through a self-guided discipline leadership development exercise. Lots of ways to do that. Lots of books can tell you how to do that. A good executive coach will quite clearly tell you how to do that. A program that many universities and other providers will offer can do the same thing. <clears throat> but it, again, learning to delegate strategic intent without micromanagement, not a natural skill for most people. And there are several obvious steps that would facilitate that happening. Let me add a fourth. And I really learned this from working with people as we have <coughs> in the armed services. A very senior 
Army officer, Marine officer, Naval Air Force officer in a room with subordinates will find it's awfully quiet until the senior officer begins to speak. And if one is not careful, this is true in the private sector obviously too, uh, your ideas will tend to dominate what people reference and what people would think when they walk out of the room. One method that those in the armed services and actually in the private sector use that I've seen is to insist that today we have no ranks. And so sometimes army officers will take off the insignia on their shoulders on the epaulets that we say one-star general and take all that insignia off and leave it outside the room. And discussion indeed is more free-flowing. Another method, these are the day-to-day tactics, the devices on the ground that I think serve the purpose we're talking about. When a discussion begins, rather than offer your own very clear-minded approach or solution to a problem you're facing, asking the person who is the most junior in the room to begin. That way you're going to hear a fresh view, not already influenced by people who are in the ranks above them. One final question. What critical advice could you give to an entrepreneur who wants to build a leadership team, just to sum up uh, everything we've talked about so far? Well, I would say compliments at the outset here to anybody who is an entrepreneur because it is one of the most vivid illustrations of what leadership is all about, taking us from where we are now to where we ought to be. I think Nelson Mandela took us took South Africa from what it was to a multiracial democratic society. An entrepreneur is, in a sense, doing much the same thing. There's a product or a service that's not out there. It's needed, and an entrepreneur with all the platform elements that are required to lead, vision, strategy, execution, is doing exactly that, of leading. I think, so the act of getting there, the commitment, the identity of entrepreneur, uh, vital, and you've got it, obviously, if if you are an entrepreneur. Then, though, that entrepreneurial instinct and your ability to see what should be done has to be mapped out and carried on through the organization, the architecture you build around you to do that. Having a great top team, totally vital. Building a culture to go with that, totally vital. And all of those elements of those two areas and others that we've talked about are for a lot of people not natural. So reminding yourself your task is not just to see what technically is needed in the market, not just to work with customers and private equity investors to get a kind of marriage of all those elements in you and building the firm, but to build a world around you that once you go from one to quite a few more than just one, have the requisite skill sets, the culture, the norms, the values, and the leadership qualities. Mike, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.